The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. The story of the garden in the second chapter of the book of Genesis is one that just about everyone has heard. Even more important, it is a story that everyone assumes that they know what it means. They know, for example, that it is a story about sin and its punishment. They know that the apple was the forbidden fruit. They know that the woman was made from the rib of the man. They know that the serpent was the devil and that he was a liar. But actually, there is reason to doubt every one of those statements. The word sin appears nowhere in the story, and neither does the word apple. The word rib appears in a number of English translations, but it is hardly the only way that the Hebrew could be translated. And nowhere does the text identify the serpent as anything other than a created animal. So, how is it that we know all of these things that are actually not part of the story? Down through the centuries, there have been many forces that have influenced the way that we hear this story. Certain theologians have wanted people to get certain things out of this story, and so read certain things into it. Cultural assumptions like patriarchy and sexism got read into it, too. In addition, the way the story has been portrayed in Western art and literature has certainly had a big impact. What's more, the position of this story, immediately after another creation story that is quite different, has almost forced us to read it in particular ways. But what if we didn't bring all of that historical and cultural baggage to this story? How might we hear it very differently? Well, I'd like to have a go at one possibility. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.13 Being and God Created a Gardener It had been a long day, a very long day. It takes a lot out of a god to create the heavens and the earth, after all. And Yahweh was really longing to have a place where he could just get away from all of the other gods and unwind and feel refreshed. And so God 
had a wonderful idea. God would plant a garden and fill it with beautiful flowers and towering trees and maybe some cool meandering brooks. It would be a place just for Yahweh, where the God could go and walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. So God found a nice spot on the earth, a place where four great rivers came together, and planted a garden. But, of course, gardens are a lot of work to keep and maintain. How could Yahweh enjoy the evening breezes if the work of weeding, mulching, and fertilizing never ended? Suddenly, Yahweh had a brainwave. A gardener! That was what was needed, some sort of creature that could till the soil and maintain all of the plants. And so God decided to take the soil itself and make it into such a creature. God formed the soil and then breathed into its nostrils, and it became a living being, a soil creature. And since it was made of dirt, of humus, God called it a human. And God took the human and placed it in the garden so that it could tend it and make it beautiful. And God told the human that it could eat all of the produce of the garden, the fruit of any tree save one. You see, the tree in the center of the garden would bring the knowledge of good and evil. And God knew that if the human gained such knowledge, it would become a morally responsible human being, able to make its own choices in life. God preferred that the human remain like a dependent child, so that it could concentrate only on maintaining the garden as a place of pleasure. So God warned it that it had better not eat from the tree in the center of the garden, warning it that on the very day that it did so, it would die. The very next day, after 24 more hours of hard labor running the whole universe, Yahweh was looking forward to a little bit of rest and relaxation, to a nice long stroll in his garden in the cool of the evening. But when God arrived, the garden was still in complete disarray. The flower beds were full of weeds, the grass was overgrown, and the trees looked all shabby. So God looked around for the gardener to see what the explanation was. Yahweh found the human huddled and depressed and in despair. The human complained that it was lonely because it had no one to spend its days with, no companion who could be its equal. 
And so it was that Yahweh realized that it was not a good thing that the human was alone and vowed to find it a suitable companion. And so God went back to creating. God began to form more creatures from the ground. God created creatures of every form and type and brought them one by one to the human. The human took great delight in each one of these creations and even gave a name to each one. It called this one a horse and that one a camel, this one an ostrich, and that one a sparrow. And so it was that in that day Yahweh created all of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves upon the earth. And the human gave to each one its own name. As you can imagine, at the end of that day, Yahweh was exhausted and did not even have the strength to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. Yet, contented by these labors, God slept well. Sometime later, after yet another exhausting day, Yahweh returned to the garden, looking for a chance to stroll in the cool of the evening and perhaps chat with the gardener about the begonias and the hostas, which should just be coming in bloom. God was gratified to see that the garden was looking a little less shabby, but when God found the human, it still seemed a bit despondent. God asked it what was wrong. Was it not pleased with all of the companions that had been created for it? This question only seemed to upset the soil creature more, and it began to weep. I'm so sorry, Mr. Yahweh. I, I really do love all of the animals you made for me. They are beautiful and smart, but there just seems to be something missing. I, I can't relate to them like I can with you, if, if you understand me, sir. Uh, don't get me wrong, I appreciate all that you've done for me, but I, I can't seem to find a companion who is my true match. Yahweh sighed. It was always something with these humans. All God wanted was someone to take care of the garden, and yet it was constantly moaning about being alone. Well, there was nothing for it. Some kind of radical solution would have to be found. And so this is what Yahweh did. God took the human and put it into a deep sleep. And while it slept, Yahweh took a knife and cut the creature in two, all the way from the top to the bottom. God then closed up the wound in the sides. 
And then God took the creature, now two creatures, and fashioned them into a male and a female, and then presented them to each other. And this is what the man said when he finally saw the woman. This time, this is the one, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now she will be woman and I will be man, because we are of one flesh. <laughs> yeah, right, eh? Men are kind of crazy like that. They see a woman and they lose all of their sanity. Why, men will even leave their mother and father's household and go to live with their wives. That is how strong that desire is to be one flesh, if you know what I mean. And because the original man and woman had come from each other, they had no need to hide anything from each other or from Yahweh. They were completely transparent with each other, and they didn't even know what shame was. And Yahweh went off to look after the universe, secure in the knowledge that all of the problems with the gardener had been taken care of, and that the garden would finally be well tended. Now, one of the creatures that God had made in an attempt to give companionship to the human was the snake. It was the smoothest of all the creatures, and it was indeed a smooth operator. And one day, as the man and the woman were at work in the garden, the snake spoke to the woman. Did God really put you in the middle of this beautiful garden, surrounded by all of these trees, and tell you not to eat any of the fruit of these trees? <laughs> no, silly, the woman laughed. We are permitted to eat the fruit of any of these trees whatever we want. Only from one tree, from the tree in the very center of the garden, are we not allowed to eat. Indeed, if we even touch that tree, we will die. You shall not die, hissed the snake. Yahweh is just trying to scare you, but it is actually because Yahweh is the one who is afraid. God is afraid that if you eat the fruit, you will be able to distinguish between right and wrong. You will stop being like a child and become an adult. Indeed, you will become like one of the gods in this. And rather than having you an equal, God would rather keep you dependent so that you focus only on your job of tending this lovely garden. 
And the woman listened to the snake and knew that there was truth in what it said. She looked at the forbidden tree and saw that it was beautiful and that its fruit would be delicious. Most of all, she now realized that the knowledge it would give would be very valuable. Now, she was no fool. She also understood that knowledge, no matter how valuable, can still come at a cost. The question was, would that cost be worth it? She wavered there a while, unsure of how to proceed. The man who stood nearby was little help. He seemed completely indecisive, and so she decided that somebody needed to make up her mind. Surely knowledge, even if it came with risks, was a worthwhile thing to pursue. And so it was that she took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate it. It was delicious. She gave some to the man who stood there, marveling at her boldness, and he ate too. The fruit went down easy. The new knowledge that came with it was a little bit harder to digest. They had never really considered before that some things could be good and others evil. They had been like children, just engaging in whatever activities lay before them without necessarily thinking of the consequences. Suddenly, they found they could no longer do that. Everything seemed to be fraught with decision and moral judgment. For example, as the man looked at the woman and saw how beautiful she was, just as Yahweh had made her, he felt the same stirrings that he always had, affection, love, and also an urgent desire and drive to be of one flesh with her. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know what I mean. But now it seemed that what had once seemed so natural to him was fraught with so many questions and doubts. Would she accept his advances would she laugh at his clumsiness and his need? He saw all of his flaws and shortcomings in stark clarity. The woman, for her part, also felt great vulnerability as she saw him looking at her. She was afraid of all the thoughts and judgments that she imagined were passing through his mind. Suddenly, both of them just felt that this situation was unbearable. The knowledge that allowed them to judge between good and evil might be a great thing, 
but the sense of being judged made them want to hide. And so they took some leaves and, sewing them together, made loincloths to cover themselves. And so it was that the next time Yahweh came to his garden to walk and shoot the evening breezes with the gardener, the gardener was nowhere to be found. For the man and the woman found it so fearful to endure the gaze of each other that it was unthinkable to be exposed before a god. When they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden, they went, and they hid themselves in the bushes, because they knew that Yahweh would be able to see all that was wrong with them. When Yahweh couldn't find them, the God called out, Where are you? The man did not dare to show himself, but shouted out from his hiding place, I heard you walking in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid. And so it was that Yahweh discovered that his gardeners were no longer as innocent and ignorant as he had intended. While God was not paying attention, it seemed that they had grown up and were ready to take responsibility for right and wrong with all of the advantages and the struggles that came with that. There followed a discourse in which the humans used their new knowledge of good and evil to shift the responsibility for the decision they had made onto each other and onto the snake. Having first invented shame, now they added to it the scourge of blame. Yahweh understood how foolish they were being. The whole point of being able to judge between good and evil was so that you could take responsibility for your choices. Maybe they would come to understand that in time, and to prompt them towards it, God handed out some symbolic punishments. But there was something else that bothered Yahweh more, and he knew that he would need some help with this one. Guys, Yahweh announced as the session opened, I think we may have a problem. Yahweh hadn't wanted to call together a meeting of the Divine Council, but knew that this was the only place where such a thing could be discussed. Y you see, God went on, I seem to have accidentally created some earth creatures. I call them humans, because uh, 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 I made them from humus. <laughs> God paused for laughter, but there was none. 
tough room. And, uh, uh, well, I may have made a few other animals as well. You know, it was just a little side project. It was about creating a nice little garden where I could go and stroll in the evening breezes and... Yahweh paused. God could tell from the blank faces of the other gods that they were not particularly into hostas and begonias and evening breezes. Anyways, God went on. To cut a long story short, these humans seem to have gotten hold of a certain fruit, and apparently they now know the difference between good and evil, just like us. The other gods were outraged. How could Yahweh do all of this without even consulting them? They insisted that Yahweh smite the humans immediately. But Yahweh was unwilling. God had, despite God's self, become fond of the little creatures. God explained that the humans had been promised that they would die on the very day that they ate the fruit, but Yahweh no longer had the heart for that. The other gods understood. They all had their sentimental sides. But they insisted on one thing. The humans must not be allowed to eat from the other tree, the tree of life. If they did that, if they were able to attain immortality, there would be nothing to set them apart from the gods. To this, Yahweh wholeheartedly agreed. They could no longer be allowed to live in the garden, in the proximity of the tree of life. And so it was that the man and the woman were expelled from the garden where Yahweh liked to walk among the evening breezes. They knew that the new adventure that lay in front of them would not be easy. No longer would everything be provided for them as it had been in the garden. But as she left, the woman did not look back. She carried with her a few questions. Had she chosen rightly? Was the knowledge that she gained worth the price of her lost innocence? And as for the snake, had it lied or told the truth? She didn't really know the answer to any of those questions, but she felt certain that the future would reveal them. I'm not saying that the way I have just told that story of the garden 
is the only way to understand it. I'm just saying that if the story were stripped away from all of the historical and theological baggage that it has been made to carry down through the centuries, that would be a perfectly reasonable way to interpret the story. The story never says that God took a rib from the human in order to make the woman. All it says in the original Hebrew is that God took something from its side. To interpret that as saying that God cut the original human into two parts is a quite possible reading. As I've already mentioned, the passage never even mentions the concept of sin, so I think it is a huge stretch to suggest that that is what it is all about. But that is what about 16 centuries of Christianity has decided. And, as for the snake, nowhere does this story say that it is any sort of angelic or demonic being. What the story says is that it is just one of the animals that God created, albeit a particularly cunning one. As for the snake's ability to speak, I honestly don't feel that it is all that much out of place in the midst of a story in which a very anthropomorphic god likes to go strolling in the garden in the evening breezes. The other important thing about God in the story, apart from being very anthropomorphic, is that God doesn't appear to be the only one of a kind. God speaks in the first person plural and says things like, Look, these humans have become like one of us, knowing both good and evil. This has traditionally been interpreted in various ways. Some have suggested that this is just a royal we. Some Christians have argued that this is the first reference to the Trinity. But honestly, the most straightforward way to read this is that God is speaking to other deities. This would not actually be the only passage in the Bible where we find God speaking to other gods. See, for example, the episode that I did on Psalm 82, episode 3.3, Scepter. The simplest explanation is that this is a very old story that comes from a time before the Israelites had come to be strict monotheists. Finally, I would also like to point out that there are a few puns or examples of wordplay in the original Hebrew text that I have tried to reflect in my story. There is a wordplay between the word for the soil, Adama, and the word for a human being, Adam, which I chose to mimic with the word pair humus and human. There is also a pun between the word for smooth and the word for clever in the description of the snake. 
I tried to capture that by describing it as a smooth operator. I would like to give a shout out to one particular resource for this episode. I drew a great deal from the Inclusive Bible, which bills itself as the first egalitarian translation. This decade-old scholarly biblical translation of the whole Bible by the Priests for Equality really does an excellent job of showing some very helpful and valid alternative readings. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please do subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Virtutes Voces and Virtutes Instrumenti. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.